Bible with you tonight. We're in Joshua chapter 23. Joshua 23. If you've um, ever driven in, which I'm sure you have, in particularly heavy rain or, you know, an extremely dense fog, you, you know how it is. You Everything's heightened, right? You have to be on high alert. You lean into the wheel. You try to peer out, you know, a lot further ahead than normal through the windshield and your body gets tense, you grip the steering wheel a little more tightly so you can be ready to swerve or brake, whatever you need to do at any given moment. And it's not fun to drive like that. It's never fun to drive when, you know, tensions are so high. I remember a couple of years ago when we were coming back from Florida, from Florida to southern North Carolina, it just was an absolute torrential downpour. It was, you know, driving like that is very, very tense. You know, everything's heightened. It's, it's, it's much better, obviously, to drive in normal conditions, you know, just so you can relax. And it's tough to stay on edge for extended periods of time. This is the point I'm getting at here. This is Joshua's concern in chapter 23. Uh, it's, it's one thing maybe for Israel to stay focused and engaged for, say, you know, what it's been, you know, a five-year-long conquest of Canaan, thereabouts. It's another thing entirely to maintain alertness and focus and engagement over the long haul. Uh, We've talked a little bit about this throughout Joshua. You know, in order to complete the conquest and preserve everything that you've gained, everything that God has given to you, that brings us to the second of the three assemblies that close the book of Joshua. The emphasis here remains on the necessity of fidelity to Yahweh for the faithful response to all that God is and all that God has done for them. Through this, Israel will retain the land. If they do that, they'll hang on to it. Without it, they'll lose everything. And so here, uh, an aged Joshua addresses Israel through her leaders in what is basically his last will and testament. He lays out another argument for remaining faithful to God. He anticipates God's help and encourages them to fix their minds on the fact that he's going to continue to be with them. He gives them conditions for God's continued help. And then he shows that God will be faithful no matter what Israel does, whether that's in ongoing grace for their faithfulness or in judgment if they break faith with them. And so the the actions and word of God in the past are our assurance of how he will act towards us in the future. Let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight to receive the truth from your word. Lord, soften our hearts, soften mine, enable me to speak clearly and concisely. Father, I ask you for your help. Lord, I pray that all that have come tonight would be blessed, Lord, that we would be helped by this, that we would see clearly what we need to see and what you've given to us in your word. I ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 1 of 23. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. So Joshua begins by stressing the unique responsibility that God's witnesses have among His people. 
He sets himself in stark contrast to Israel's remaining leaders. It's an age thing at this point. I am now old, he says, and well advanced in years. And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done. Right? So they're, they've, these leaders that he calls to himself, they've actually seen God's work. They know what he's done and they know what he can do. The difference is the age. Joshua has seen it all his life. They've seen it. Um, they're much younger. Not necessarily young, but younger than uh, Joshua was. So they have to be the spearheads now of fidelity to the Lord. Joshua is passing away. He knows his time is coming. It's a solemn time for Israel. They'd already lost Moses some years back, and now Joshua is going to die. It's coming soon. But he's using this last opportunity to speak to them to exhort them to the pure worship of God. The men who've seen God's mighty work in the conquest and will outlive Joshua, they have a special responsibility to ground Israel in spiritual faithfulness to the Lord. They are the ones that can spur Israel on to total occupation of the land. They can't allow anything to dilute and destroy Israel's distinctive faith and life. That's the concern. I, I, I would say it is... We're going to get into this a little bit, but, and I don't, I really don't want to discount in any way, shape, or form the unique role of women in the church. So please don't hear that, okay? Please don't hear that. I, I, however, the church has a unique need in God's providence and His design for men in particular who will bear this responsibility, right? It's, it's kind of on them. To be faithful witnesses to the Lord's faithfulness. We need that from men. It's, it's not that women can't do that. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that in the body of Christ, the way it's been designed for God's people is that you, you need the men to be faithful witnesses to the Lord's faithfulness. That's just the way God has seen to work it. Not, not men who serve themselves. Not men who, as we age, uh, we get... We can get prideful and grouchy and lazy. Um, I kind of half-heartedly joke sometimes about my age, but I am getting older. I'm, I'm pushing 50. I'm getting grouchy. You know, I, I can I can feel it. I'm getting more cynical. More, and, and it's it's the 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 body of Christ doesn't need that from the men in it, right? We don't just get mean and nasty as we age. We we. Uh, God doesn't bless His people so that we can rest on our laurels, but for the sake of an ongoing witness to His faithfulness, not to our own selves. And if, if we make everything about us, gentlemen, in particular, if, if we make everything about us, we're doing a disservice to God's people. These leaders had seen all that God had done to all these nations, he says in verse 3. They'd seen all the great work God had done for Israel. But the time will come when, like Joshua, they are also going to leave this world. We'll read, uh, if we were going into Judges, which that's not the plan, but in Judges 2.10, we read of another generation right after this rising up that the text says, did not know Yahweh nor the work that he had done for Israel. Now, why was that? Was it that the men Joshua is charging here didn't do their task? I don't think so. Um, 24.31 of Joshua seems to at least imply that these men were diligent in their calling and tried to lead Israel to faithfulness. But that's the thing. The very fact that a faithless generation can still arise out of a faithful generation ought to let us know how vital it really is 
for each generation to at least pass on the amazing story of God's saving power and fearful judgment. Whether that generation hears or refuses to hear, that's on them. But each generation has to be faithful to its own calling. And so to, to, to the men of our church, I would say, as we grow older, as, as we begin to reach or, you know, the twilight of our own lives, what will our priorities be, brother? What will be our priorities? If it's to make a name for ourselves and make everything about us and dig our heels in and get what we want or establish our own personal legacy rather than pass on the story of God's faithfulness, we're going to fail in our calling. Passing on the story of the record of God's faithfulness doesn't guarantee the fidelity of the next generation, but the failure to do so does guarantee the unfaithfulness of the next generation. So we have to be asking ourselves, whose name do we really want to be remembered? What name would cause faithfulness if it's remembered? So uh, Psalm 78 very uniquely instructs Israel to tell this story, what Joshua is encouraging these men to remember and and to to speak of. Um, Psalm 78 is, we're not going to look at it tonight, but it's a whole philosophy basically of, how to educate the people in the covenant about God's faithfulness. Here's what you tell them. Here's what they need to know. And ultimately, here's the thing. Even though I, you know, I address the church, this is not mainly the responsibility of the church, but of believing parents. Uh, particularly, you know, in other words, how is this going to be done? How are they going to do this in their own homes and teaching their sons and teaching their daughters? And it, it's really in the home. That's really where this is done or not done. At least that's the way it appears in Proverbs. A, a church, the gathered church, can only do so much um, if if a family came every time we had a gathering, right? We would we would get the children, whether it's in here or with workers, three hours a week at the most, at the most, right? That's that's nothing, right? And usually it's not even close to that. It's, and I don't mean any knock on folks on folks' attendance. It's just. It, it gets harder and harder to be here three times a week for, for, you know, young or larger families. It just can be very difficult. That's the way it is. But we're to be witnesses in our own homes. That can go a very long way in determining whether our children set their hope in God. Again, that's what, when you look at this here and you take it with Psalm 78 and how it's instructing to do what is being told here, that's basically how it works. You need witnesses uh, in our own homes that will help determine whether our children set their hope in God. That's Psalm 78, verse 7. We're also witnesses to God's grace, right? Now, unlike those leaders in Israel, of course, we didn't see the priest's feet touch the Jordan. We didn't hear the crumbling walls of Jericho. We didn't hide and wait to ambush the people of Ai. But we do have the record of all those things. We know those things happened. And in fact, we have a better written record of it in our time than Israel's leaders would have had in theirs, actually. But this isn't so, again, it's, it's not dull or, or boring or tedious, and I don't know that anybody here thinks that. It's just, remember that. When you wonder if, whether or not it can be taught or if it still has traction, what's boring about God becoming flesh? What's boring about uh, what no one has ever done that is perfectly keeping God's law? Uh, what is boring about this one becoming forsaken in my place, who trampled death, who reigns now over the universe? That's the faith we have to teach our children and proclaim in our churches. The, the, the best thing for a child, the best thing for the younger generation, whether they're children or not, is that they hear this constant 
unified witness at home and in the church to who Christ is and what Christ has done. That carries the day. Because remember, Canaan also has its evangelists. Canaan also has its teachers and its influencers. Calling people to idolatry, calling people to, you know, fulfillment and salvation are found in things like sexual freedom and all these types of things, right? They also have their evangelists. Will we proclaim his worth and his faithfulness or will our testimony be ultimately about ourselves? Look at me, look at what I did. We, that won't carry the day. There's not only the reality of their responsibility to proclaim God's faithfulness then, Israel is also being given here with that charge the assurance of God's help. Pick it back up with me in verse 3. We'll read to 5. And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. That's what they can have if they will be faithful. That's what God is promising to do if they will be faithful. And so first Joshua refers to the relatively recent past in verse past in verse 3. Then he anticipates the immediate future in verses 4 and 5. And this is the same uh, consistent picture of the conquest of Canaan that we find in documents outside the Scripture that corroborate the story. There was an initially decisive conquest. That's what he's talking about in verse 3. And then there was a continuing occupation, which he's talking about in verses 4 and 5. Now God had given rest in verse 1, but there's also still work to be done in verses 4 and 5. Right? Completely unlike the new covenant. Right? Notice that when you see it. But these are complementary words. Yes, God has revealed from the first, from the very beginning, that there would be a necessarily gradual aspect to the conquest. He told Israel that all the way back in Exodus 23, 29 and 30, that he would not drive out the Canaanites all at once. But Joshua's point is not to explain the manner of the conquest. He's trying to give them the basis for ongoing confidence. He wants them, those who remain, to be sure of God's continuing help. At no point is he saying, all right, I've done what I can. This is all up to you. He grounds them in this assurance by appealing to God's most recent activity in verse 3 and also to his precious promises in verse 5, right? Just as the Lord your God promised you, both God's actions then and God's word are to sustain the people. So anyone who had seen what God did at Jericho or Ai or Beth Horon or Miriam and Hazor, they should be able to keep trusting God for whatever task remains. If God's promises had always proven true so far, then they are certainly enough for whatever lies ahead. And notice Joshua doesn't stress their role in any of this. Nothing that they did. He doesn't stress anything they had done at all. He exalts the power of God in all those victories. That's verse 3 and verse 5. That's just the plain logic of faith. This is the consistent biblical pattern. Israel's confidence and assurance come from remembering God's faithful words and deeds in the past. That, that, that's the overwhelming witness of the Psalms, which they would have used in worship and in praise. The God who acted a certain way in the past is perfectly sufficient for what comes next. Their responsibility is the obedience of faith. We will keep believing you. 
That, that's when they're told to do this and do that. That's what they're actually being told. Keep believing me and I will do it. Verse 6. Therefore, because of God's promises, right? Therefore, because of what God has done, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. The bulk of chapter 23, in reality, is about the careful obedience that's being required here of God's people. That's what the main thrust of chapter 23 is. Joshua is primarily addressing the leaders in verse 2, yes, but he's addressing them as representatives of the people. They're to go back and tell exactly what they've been told to the people. What is demanded of the leaders is actually demanded of every Israelite also. Their standard of obedience is the word of God. Look there in verse 6 again. Therefore be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. Now if you can remember, or will when I mention it, all the way back in chapter 1 verses 7 and 8, that was the demand that God laid out specifically on Joshua as the new leader. Here, he places all Israel under it. So there isn't some higher level of obedience required of some servants of God, while the rest can just kind of go along casually. All the Lord's people owe complete obedience to all of the Lord's word. That's what Joshua is making clear here. In verses 7 and 8, he specifies this great obedience that the law of the Lord requires. It's actually very specific. He's talking about something something certain. Israel is to live in accordance with all that the law of Moses demands. And here's the most vital demand of what that law requires. Verse 7. That you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. Cling to the Lord your God. Now that is always the main priority for God's people. That's always the main thing. But this, here you read the particular form of obedience for national Israel in Canaan is to take the form of separation. The more they mix with the Canaanites, the more likely it is they'll forget their covenant Lord. Now, very quickly here. There are some, have always been some, driven probably by some racism, okay? I don't know that for certain, but probably that have taken these commands to mean you can't mix races or cultures in marriage if you're Christian. That's a very poor, a very low interpretation of Scripture. The Bible never teaches that. Um, this speaks to the spiritual issues between Israelites and Canaanites, and that's why they shouldn't intermarry. 
Idolatry will always infect covenant faithfulness. That's the concern. So it can't be entertained, tampered with, coddled. This is the word of the Lord. Don't let other gods and the worship of them or anything to do with them, don't let that mix with your covenant faithfulness. The Bible is crystal clear about this. Don't entertain that. Don't dance around with it. Don't, you know, allow a little bit of it in and just think that you can keep it at bay. You and I cannot keep idolatry at bay. We can't. Again, this is the word of the Lord. There are still warnings like this today for God's new covenant people. Think, think in particular, okay, let's talk about marriage and relationships, okay? How many have pierced themselves with pain after pain after pain in the body of Christ because they will not hear the word of the Lord not to marry, not to be yoked together with unbelievers. And, and, and we don't listen. We, 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 we just convince ourselves, look, I, you know, I, you probably have to, right? But I'm, I'm telling you, I have heard as a pastor so many times, no, pastor, don't worry. I'll, I'll never let, I'll never let this, the, the fact that they're not a Christian affect my Christianity. They respect my Christianity. They respect my belief, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And every single time, it's only a matter of time. Right? It, it, we, we're, not, we're not built for it. We get pulled away. When we yoke ourselves in something like marriage to an unbeliever, or even, I would say, you, you really need to be careful with dating as well. If I could sound like a, I guess, a parent there for a minute, like just, you, you can't play this game. You, you can't, if you hold that fire close to your chest, you're going to get burned. It's going to hurt you. Right? It's, it's going to hurt you. But we, we, we don't, we don't listen. We don't default to obedience, beloved. It, it's too hard. We believe our hearts. We, we always think, I can handle it. I, but this situation, because of this and that and this and that, it'll be okay. And it's, it's in particular with marriage, right? I just, I know most of us are not, most of us are either married or, you know, I, I don't know, but just, don't doubt the word of the Lord. Don't doubt his love for you. Don't doubt why he would command you the things that he does. Just don't. It's, it's never worth it. Right? And I know that, um, and maybe, you know, you, you, you have someone you can pass this on to. You know, I know that it's hard to wait. You know, I know that it's hard to wait or to believe that somebody's going to come along or, or, but we need to find our identity in Christ alone and then trust that he will be with us and if he brings us somebody fantastic if he doesn't it's better to not have anybody than to be with somebody the Lord has already told you don't do that right don't do that alright soapbox over alright just be careful Jesus doesn't tell us he's going to take us out of the world he tells us he's going to keep us he prays not that God would take us out of the world that's not what he's doing so separation doesn't go that far so Basically, if we're not supposed to mix, then we should move out and build a monastery or a convent and just, no, don't do that. Right? Don't do that. Ask Lot if it's a good idea to just hide in a cave with your family. It's not. Right? It's not. So, Jesus doesn't pray, Lord, take them out of the world. He says, Lord, keep them from the evil one. John 17, 15. We have to trust His loving heart for us rather than trust our own self. Joshua follows a pattern we see often in Scripture. He tries to motivate their obedience by showing the advantage to obedience. 
So he doesn't just assert what the standard is, but the motive for obedience um, also. In verses 9 and 10, he appeals to the grace of God. And again, we ask, you know, how does grace motivate? It's a gift. Because grace is the source and evidence of God's love for us. And when we believe this, that's what motivates us. It's only later in verses 11 through 13 that he appeals to the other powerful motivator there is in obedience. The fear of the Lord. The severity of God. Verses 9 and 10 reflect on what God has done for Israel in the recent past. So Israel's response because of the goodness should be faithful obedience out of recognition for his goodness. He's been good to us. Why wouldn't we follow him? Why wouldn't we serve him? Right? But verses 11 through 13 are almost a threat. Or are a threat. If Israel turns away and does not cling to the Lord, but to these remaining nations and intermarries with them, then God will no longer enable them to complete the conquest. Instead, these nations will prove to be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes in verse 13. If God says that's what they'll be if you get mixed up with them, that's what they're going to be. Israel won't be able to change that about the Canaanites. Right? That's what they're going to be if they mix with them. And Israel would finally perish from the land. A snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes. Just like Joshua argues from the memory of God's goodness, he also appeals to the threat of God's judgment. But the grace of God and the fear of God have a place in our life. They both do. We could think of it as the law and the gospel. Both have a place in our lives. The gospel gives us the word of God's grace, the forgiveness of sins brought about by Christ, and by nothing we do or don't do. It's a pronouncement of a finished work for you. That's the gospel. While the law reminds us of what he requires, how he's commanded us to live, and therefore how and where we are still falling short. So that we might live in a state of constant repentance and of a uh, awareness of our need for Christ. That's how the law works in us now. Right? It's not that do this or not and you die and I kick you out of your inheritance. It's that I still require you to live this way. This is what I've commanded you to do. This is the best way for you. This is the most peaceful way for you. This is the right way to live. And even as Christians, when we realize there are commands that we are not following, it keeps our eyes fixed on Christ. He's not evaluating your performance anymore to decide whether you're in or out or whether He's going to keep your inheritance for you. Right? But He is saying, this is what I've called you to do and to be. God's judgment has always been certain for those who are unrepentant in their faithfulness. Again, don't worry. I mean, don't worry if that you struggle with sin. Don't let that question, don't, don't let that make you question whether or not God has accepted you if you're struggling with sin. When you refuse to be repentant, you need to be worried. You need to be worried. When you're obstinate, uncaring, prideful, lackadaisical towards your own sin, then you should worry. I don't think an unrepentant person has any ounce of basis for assurance in Scripture. Not one. You can be a mess and be repentant about it. You have nothing to worry about. But when we just ignore our lingering sinfulness as though it doesn't matter, there's an issue. There's a problem there. And again, I'm not, I'm not telling you you're not saved. I'm telling you I wouldn't claim any assurance if I refused to be repentant. Look at verse 14. Pick it up there. And now I am about to go the way of all the earth. 
And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. I think that's what Joshua was all about. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until He has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which He commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that He has given to you. And look, that's what happened. That's what happened. Tragically, that's what happened. Under the old covenant, Joshua continues mainly with the element of threat and fear. Right? He closes off the address by emphasizing the absolute certainty of God's judgment if Israel turns their back on him in faithlessness. What would that look like? It would look like them mixing with the Canaanites. That's how they would know when they were being disobedient and the curses were going to come. And so verse 14 is the climax of Joshua's exhortation. The people know about the faithfulness of God. Not a single word of God had fallen. No failing words. All that God said had been fulfilled in detail. It was perfect. Now comes the benediction, right? But Joshua hasn't made his point yet. That's verse 15. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until He has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. Divine disaster would come if Israel broke the covenant by serving and worshiping other gods, which is what verse 16 specifically explains. God is faithful on both edges of His sword. Grace and judgment. To those who receive His Word, He is filled only with grace. But to those who reject it, His Word is filled only with judgment. God is faithful both to heal and to bind up and to break and to destroy. Today, this Word of God is not based on who does enough good and who shuns enough bad. That's not who God has sent. But on who is humble and contrite in repentance and who is obstinate and refuses to break before Him. That's the dividing line. Really, it always has been under both covenants. He accepts the broken and the humble and the contrite and He rejects those that are too arrogant to believe they need to. Joshua's not being a downer here. That's not really his intent. He's not trying to be pessimistic. But just as Moses, Joshua knows these people. He knows their tendencies. We would do so much better as people if we would just listen to the Word of the Lord, but we often refuse. And it's like we have to learn the hard way. God would save us from this. It doesn't have to go that way. Right? We don't have to make bad decisions that wreck the entire direction of our lives. We don't have to do that. But you also need to know that when you do, He doesn't forsake you. And He doesn't throw you out of the house either. But Christ has risen from the grave for you. Joshua gives the whole counsel of God, which includes noting the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Romans 11, 22. That's, that's clinging to the Lord as it is being said to us today. Continue in His 
kindness. That is, if we try to remain faithful through our own strength and by our own works, we're going to falter. Right? Our flesh is not strong enough to do what the Lord requires. And when we take it on ourselves to try and live up to this, that's when we fall. Right? Think of the self-confidence and pride of saying, Lord, I know you said don't do this, but I can handle it. Right? And in this unique thing, the Israelites were thinking oftentimes we can mix a little bit. It's okay. Right? We can do that's faithlessness. That's relying on self. Right? You, you, we, you hear the command of Jesus, therefore you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. We say, then tell me what to do. Let me try to be perfect. Let me try to live up to it. You can't. And to do this, Paul says such people are trying to be justified through the law. And therefore, in Galatians 5.4, he says, have fallen from grace. That's a powerful text. But we must continue in the kindness that saved us. You continue in the kindness that saved you. You never move beyond it. Especially when you look at the commands you've been given as Christians. You don't switch from kindness to grit and hard work. You you continue in the kindness, the grace that saved you. You continue needing it, continue desiring it, continue recognizing your need for it and embracing that need. We walk by faith in Christ for us. We don't walk by sight on our own progress. The grace that pronounces to us that it's finished, that is the grace that in Titus 2, 11 and 12 trains us for godliness. God will conform you to the image of His Son, perfect and holy, by grace. That's how we become producers of the work that is pleasing to Him. When we take our hands off, live by faith, and the Spirit bears His fruit through us. The actions and Word of God in the past are our assurance of how He will act towards us in the future. We remain faithful when our eyes are fixed on nowhere and no one but Christ for us in the Gospel. Faith's response is the fruit of God's power for salvation. It is the ongoing belief in the Gospel. It is continuing in His kindness and therefore living in obedience to Him by grace through faith in Christ alone. Would you stand, please?